He is risen. Welcome to Sojourn. My name is Dylan, one of the pastors here. Normally, what we do each and every week is we go through books of the Bible together verse by verse. We see that God has given us His Word to inform and instruct all that we are to do as a church and as believers. And so we, we do that each and every week. Today we're taking a brief break from the book of Genesis to look a little bit more directly at the resurrection of our Lord. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't, you can follow up on the screen as well. I'm going to read this passage for us, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want to ask that you would demonstrate your power through your word this morning by equipping saints, by calling in unbelievers, transforming hearts and lives. We pray that you would help us to to see and that you would show the power of your presence as we, your, your people, are gathered together. We know that you say that your people, the people of God, the church, is where your spirit dwells. And where your people are gathered and where your word is proclaimed, God, we know that that is a potent combination. And God, we want you to be exalted in it. So we pray that that was what would happen during this time. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I have owned and worn probably the worst shirt in the history of shirts. This was a shirt that came around, this is kind of in the 90s, it was a time when, when I hope, maybe, acronyms, crazy acronyms were at their peak. Where you know, you're just, you're just, whatever saying you wanted, you just throw an acronym on there and put it on a t-shirt. You see these in locker rooms, but this is the t-shirt that I had, and it said this on there. <laughs> Yoga whippy. And I wore this on a t-shirt. Yoga whippy is, is an acronym, it means you only get out... What you put in. Now, why in the world anybody would make that into an acronym is beyond me. And then why someone would then print it on a t-shirt for others to buy and wear, once again, beyond me. Now, I, I think that there are some good questions with that. But, but you can imagine as we were young boys wearing these shirts around where our minds went. We did, we did not really appreciate the saying, you only get out what you put in. In fact, we, we made fun of it quite a bit. Instead of yoga whippy, we would say yoga wipey. Things like that. They just change it around. You know, like, this is the worst shirt ever, and yet I wore it. But maybe the, the saying, the acronym, you only get out what you put in, could be applied in some areas that would, would be a good application. I don't know. I, I don't want to blame the person that came up with this acronym. Uh, maybe they had good intentions. You only get out what you put in. But that is not a good acronym. It's not a good saying when it comes to the content of the gospel. So you will not be seeing any yoga whippy shirts around here with a a Bible underneath it or something. We will not make those for you to wear. It wouldn't work when it comes with the content of the gospel. See, when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you only get out what you put in is is really a horrible phrase, a horrible acronym, because the, the gospel is really about what's already there. 
And so you can try to put stuff in it or try to take stuff out of it. Many people have and do. But when you do that, what you actually get is a different gospel and not the real gospel. It's kind of like a, a stew, right? There's lots of things that go in stew. And you could probably take one or two things out and it'd still be a stew. But there, are, there's not that case with the gospel, right? You can't take one thing out and it'd be the gospel still. It has to have its content. In fact, the, the content of the gospel is so essential that if you were to take one, of, one piece of it out, then it would not be the gospel at all. It would be something completely different. That The content of the gospel matters because the gospel, what it is, it's a message. And as a message, it has certain things that have to be a part of that message that can't be taken away and things cannot be added on. And so the gospel really is its, its content. And here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives us the content of the gospel. That Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture. That he was buried and that he was raised according to the scripture and that he appeared. And if that content that Paul gives to them isn't there, then we don't have the gospel. So if the content isn't there, neither is the gospel. And so thankfully, we don't have a God who just leaves us guessing what good news would be. But He spells it out for us. He tells us because He wants us to know it, because He wants us to receive it. And so Paul gives us this great summary in 1 Corinthians 15 of the gospel message. Now, normally we would do this in context as we go through books, but after 14 chapters with the Corinthians and all of their mess, they had all sorts of practical problems, after 14 chapters of addressing them, he still feels like they're in a place where he needs to turn back to the gospel and remind them of it, as verse 1 says. And here's what he reminds them of. Verse 3, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. So this is, as in Paul's mind, of first important. After all that he said in, in chapters 1 through 14, that there's divisions in the church, there's, there's people struggling for power, there are people going to, to eat idol meat, there, there are people that are uh, committing sexually immoral deeds that aren't even committed among the pagans. Uh, there are all these things that are going on, and Paul says this is of first importance. And it's of first importance not because... It needs to be known as facts. Not because it's like, here's a periodic table of elements, I want you to memorize these so you know what's going on here. That that is not why it's of first importance. You know, Saul, before he kind of came Paul, he knew the facts of the gospel. He knew Jesus died, buried, and resurrected. He knew all of those things as facts, but he didn't know the gospel. The gospel is the power of God, the scripture says, for salvation to everyone who believes. It makes dead people come alive. Faith comes by hearing, the scripture says, and hearing by the word of Christ. And so this isn't just a gospel, a message, good news, just to be heard and known as facts, but it's to be received and loved and enjoyed. The gospel is of first importance because it's for salvation, so that you might know God. But what is the gospel? And Paul gives us the contents of the gospel. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And each word matters here. That Christ Died. Christ, speaking of the unique identity of the one who died, it reminds us that this was something different. To be Christ was to be the Messiah. To be one who was set apart as a special agent for God to use. This was, this was our Christ. This was Jesus. There, there were people that were anointed that were kind of messianic type figures in the Old Testament. They were priests and, and prophets and kings. They were set apart for God to use for a specific service. And here comes this expectation of a Christ who would come, who would rule and reign like David and he was anointed. Who would, who would speak forth like a, like a prophet that Moses was. And here comes Christ. He is this unique one who has this unique identity as the Messiah, not just a Messiah. 
It reminds us of who He was. And Colossians 1.16 gives us this great summary of Him. By Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And yet what does it say about this Christ? That Christ died. Christ died. More specifically, I think we could say Christ was crucified. John chapter 19 informs us here, as do the other Gospels, about the crucifixion of Jesus. When they they took Him out and He bore His own cross to the place called the place of the skull. And there, they crucified Him. Now remember the unique identity of this person, right? Many have died for good causes. Lots of people die for really good causes in the world. Many have died sacrificial deaths. You think about our, our, our firefighters and policemen, all the, our, our army, our, our armed forces. All these people put themselves on the line sacrificially for the good of others. That happens all the time and it's to be commended. Many have even been crucified. Lots of people were crucified. Jesus wasn't the only one crucified. Lots of people were crucified. So what's different about Christ being crucified than all the others? Well, that's it. Christ, right? It reminds us of the unique identity of the one who sacrificially died. Of the one who was crucified. But what we're talking about when we're speaking of the crucifixion is we're talking about something that happened to God. Not just another man. Lots of people died and that doesn't pay for sins. It's only if the person who is nailed to that tree is God Himself does this matter for us at all today. And this did happen to God. So why? Why? Why did Christ die? Why suffer the crucifixion at the hands of people through whom they were were created through Him and for Him? Why suffer at their hands? Well, it says in verse 3 that He died For our sins. That is that Jesus, the Christ, didn't die for His own sins. He is the one, 2 Corinthians 5, right? He knew no sin. He is the spotless Lamb. He is the one who is without spot or blemish, without sin. He is the righteous one. He didn't die for His own sins, but His creatures are all full of sin. He died for our sins. That is that God created every single one of us. In His image. So He is our Father, our Creator. He has rights over us to tell us what to do. Because He made us. We didn't make ourselves. We didn't have a hand in that part. God made us. And He put His image. We bear His image. And so we are to reflect back to God His perfection, His glory, His greatness, His goodness, His mercy, His grace. All those things we are to reflect perfectly back to God. Yet we know that we don't do this. We don't represent God well. We don't rule His creation well. We don't obey Him well. Instead, the Scripture is really, really clear that from Genesis 3 onward, that all have missed the mark. No one seeks for God. Not even one. That all have rebelled against Him. That all have turned aside. All have become corrupt. And so, the problem is not something out there. The problem is inside of us. It's it's our hearts. That we sin against God. It's it's not something that we can just, alright, let's fix this behavior. No, like we have something deeper than that. We aren't sinners simply because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Our hearts are sinful. Their inclinations are away from the Lord and not to Him. And the most troubling part about this is, is that we, have, we, we probably, likely many of you wouldn't come in here and say, like, humanity's good, everything's fine. Most of you would probably say, like, we can look around, 
Middle East, maybe, and ISIS terrorists, all these other say, oh, oh, there's a problem with humanity. Right? We understand that humans are bad. We look at government, oh, there's some people that are bad there. There's, there's scandals, there's corruption. Most of us wouldn't have a problem if I just said humanity has a problem. Most of us would be okay with that. But here's where the Bible gets really, really close to us, and maybe too close from you, is that the problem isn't just out there with other people. The Bible is really, really clear that it's in us, all of us, that we all have the problem, that we are all sinful. Amen. Jesus met a man who had a problem with this, I think. In in Matthew chapter 19, there's this rich young man who comes to him in verse 16. It says, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, there's a lot that could be said here, that could be assumed about this guy. But this seems like a pretty good question on face value, right? You want to know how to inherit eternal life? That's a good question. You can see maybe some of the problems there. He said, what must I do to get there? Jesus undercuts that, obviously, in his life and death. But it's a good question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. There you go. Just keep the commandments. Simple as that. No big deal. That sounds good. Like We love the formula. Let's just keep the commandments. Let's do that. So this guy says, he responds back to him, which ones? I I would want to know this too. I like this guy. Which ones do you want me to keep? I want eternal life. Tell me what it is. Okay, those, I will do those. But Jesus said, alright, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now right there, we are all just cut under. Right? right? We just got chopped out right there. Do we, do we bear false witness? Do we, have we ever lied? Have we ever stolen something? Have we ever, Jesus says, not just have you outwardly murdered, have you hated someone? Have you, ever, have you ever done any of these things? All of us right there are leveled. We all have fit. Love your neighbor as yourself. We can go to that one, right? Have I taken care of my neighbor as well as I've taken care of me? Like, no. We all clearly fail to keep those commandments. We have not succeeded here. The young man said back to him, as many of us may say back, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, he said this, If you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now that's where it gets a little bit too close for this guy. That, that he thought, hey, I'm, I'm good here, I've, I've kept all these things, the formula's been working well in my life, and everything's good. And then Jesus brings this one in. He comes up and what he always does, he asks these questions that reveal the heart. And he gets right to the heart of this guy and there's sin in that heart, right? Because if there's anything, anything that is treasured above Christ, that is sin. If you treasure something above Christ, that's called an idol. You are not worshiping rightly the God who made you, then you are living in sin. So is there anything that we treasure above God? And if there is, if, if Jesus came and said, sell everything, many of us would likely be in the situation, this man, with more possessions than most. If we think about around the world and even around us, most of us would be in it. We have a decent amount of possessions. This would be a hard thing to do because we treasure things here and now. And he said, just give it all up. The man went away sad because he had a lot of possessions. Now this isn't the point of the story, but here's what Jesus does. Is that he gets to his heart, he reveals the sin when the guy didn't think he had sin. And this is what the Bible always does to us. Is there something that you treasure above God? Then you are a sinner. And because of our sins, we have two problems. Two problems that we'll come back to later on as well. 
And here are the two problems that there is a penalty that we, did, we owe because of our sin. And the penalty, Romans 6, right? The wages of sin is death. The penalty because of our sin before holy God is death. That's one problem. The other problem is that sin holds a power over us. That we are under the fall. Meaning that the fall has affected us all. That we no longer can get out of our sinful state. That we can't keep the commandments. If we tried as hard as we could, we would always treasure something above Christ every now and then at least. So we have this power that we can't overcome. And the greatest power of sin is what? Death. That we will go to. All of us. But, but, Jesus died for our sins. He came as our substitute. Taking our penalty that we deserve for our sins as the sinless, spotless lamb. And he showed power over sin and death as we see in the content of the gospel. And He can die for our sins because He didn't have sin of His own to pay for. Jesus is the man who came and didn't treasure anything else above His Father. That He he loved and delighted in glorifying in the Father and bringing Him glory. And so He comes and He doesn't have sin to pay for so that now He can be a substitute. He can step in the place of another because He doesn't have His own. He can pay for others. Hebrews 7 says it this way, It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy and innocent, unstained and separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like the those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all. That is, sacrificed himself once for all when he offered up himself. That is, the penalty that is due for our sins is that we die. The power that is over us because of our sin is that we will die. And the spotless lamb was required that we might be purified, that we might be forgiven of our sins. And Jesus comes, and John the Baptist looks at him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul comes and says, This is of first importance that Christ died for our sins. And because He knew no sin, He could become sin for us. That in Him and through Him, we might become righteous. Still, was Jesus' death necessary? Did He have to die to pay for sins? As this Creator God, isn't there another way? Couldn't He have done something different? Well, I'm a sinner, so when I grew up in church... Jay's dad was preaching. I was not paying attention all the time. We used to bring, this was back in the heyday of, of cards, baseball cards, football cards. We used to bring cards to church. I can remember the box. See, my mom let us do this, so. I remember the box that we brought these cards in. And there was one time apparently that I was not paying attention and was messing with these cards. Well, one of these cards is up here. This is the Barry Sanders All-Pro card. This was like my brother's coveted card. I don't know if this was ever worth anything, but we thought, like, this is the card in his collection of greatest value. Apparently, I didn't know this as the younger sibling, and I just decided to start coloring on this said card. Which I don't know how much this would have been worth or could have been worth. Maybe something, though. Not after it's colored on. Right? You don't take a card and, and turn it in for cash after someone writes with ink pen all over it. And, and here's what could have happened, right? My brother is now the offended party. I am the offender. I have colored on his card and now it is worth nothing. And there are two options here for forgiveness, right? Here are the options. 
One, he could buy a new one at his own cost. Right? He is the offended party. He's going to have to work out how he's going to bring forgiveness. He could buy a new one at his own cost. It's going to cost him something. Or he could do this. He could just say, I'm going to receive this as is. I will absorb the cost of you writing in pen on my card. Those are the options. Even if I went and bought him a new one, that couldn't make an appropriate payment necessarily for him to forgive me. I can't earn somebody else's forgiveness even if I buy them a new one. He's not required to forgive me. Right? So any way you look at it, there is going to be a cost to forgiveness. There is going to be a cost for replacing this card. And our sin works the exact same way. That no matter how you do it, it just can't be erased and forgotten. That forgiveness always comes at a cost. It will always come at a cost. And here's the reality is that we are the offenders and God is the offended. And so we don't have the right to come before Him and say, You should forgive us because of this. He is the one who has been offended here. We are the offending parties and so we don't have the say here. Forgiveness has to come if it's going to come. It has to come from God. So what would be an appropriate payment for our sin against an infinitely good and infinitely holy God? Well, the Scripture is pretty clear that it has to be blood. Hebrews 9, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And the Scripture is clear that this blood can't just be anybody. It just can't be our life. If we were to pay with our own life, we'll be paying for eternity. That's the penalty of sin. It has to be one without spot, one without blemish. This, this perfection, spotless, it actually has to be God Himself. It's the only one who can do this because all human beings are born under the fall. And Jesus came and shed His blood for our sins. Christ died for our sins. And all of this happened, verse 3, according to the Scriptures. Genesis 3 God promised that there was going to be one who would come. From the seed of the woman, one was going to raise up and he was going to smash the head of the seed of the serpent. His his heel would be bruised. There would be pain in this. There's going to be a sacrifice. There's going to be blood. But he's going to win. You can think of the sin offerings all through the Old Testament. In Leviticus especially, think about all these offerings that they're making for sins. And Hebrews says that the blood of bulls and goats would never pay for sin. That someone else had to come. You think of scriptures like Isaiah 53, that surely He has borne our griefs, that He had all of our iniquity laid on Him, that by His blood we are healed. He bears our stripes. All of this happened according to Scripture so that Paul or so that Peter could say in Acts 2 that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God planned to die. Who does that? Who looks down on humanity that rebels to Him? He looks down, Romans 5, 8, right? What does He see? Enemies. Enemies. And while you are enemies, God displays His love for us and that he, He dies for us. He looks down and sees enemies and He still comes. He still plans. He still dies for our sins. And there is no gospel if Christ did not die for our sins according to the Scriptures. But the horrors of that crucifixion and of Good Friday continued after the crucifixion as we continue. Verse 4 says that He was buried. That is that Jesus really died. I mean, it brings a note of finality to it, doesn't it? Jesus died. God died on the cross. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, they get Him down, they place Him in a tomb, they seal it up, they have it guarded. He's dead. He's gone. Life has been extinguished 
there. He was buried gives us that final resounding note that Jesus actually died. But thankfully that wasn't the end. You continue on in verse 4, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. We see this in the book of Luke, chapter 24. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they'd prepared. These are women. And they'd found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Great question, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. So the resurrection happened after Christ has died and after He has been buried. And it happened, it says, according to the Scriptures. And you might rack your brain like, I've never seen that in the Old Testament. I don't remember a resurrection you know, text in the Old Testament. Well, Psalm 16.10 says, You won't let your Holy One see corruption. We see David was promised one who would rule on his throne forevermore. You can't rule if you are dead. Isaiah 53, after we see all this punishment that the ser- servant takes on, he actually looks upon those who he's won. He, he speaks to them. He's, he's pouring out blessings in, Psalm, in Isaiah 53. In Daniel chapter 7, you see the Son of Man come right up to the Ancient of Days and reign and rule over all creation. In Jonah, you see Jonah in the belly of the fish. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you that sign. That in three days I'll be there and it'll spit me back out again. And so here's the norm. You live, you die, you are buried, and you stay dead. That's the norm. That's what happens in life. Jesus died, was buried, and was raised. And appeared, verse 5. He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then He appeared to more than 500, it says. Now, among the first that saw Jesus as He appeared after He was dead were women, who if you were to build a case in court, their testimony is not the one that you wanted to use. You wanted a man's testimony. That was the testimony that was going to hold weight in court. And yet, what does the Scripture tell us? That the women saw it first, and they're actually recording this. And why are they recording this? Because that's actually how it happened. They're not building a case. They're giving us the facts. Jesus was raised. Women saw it. This is pretty compelling evidence, if you think there is no resurrection, that the women saw it first, and that they're telling us the women saw it first, and they're still holding to it as this is what's weighty for us. Also, you see that a lot of the Gospels were were attached to these disciples, these apostles. And what did they do after Jesus was raised? What did they do after He died? They mourned. And after He was raised, what did they do? They went in hiding. Because they thought He was really dead and they didn't know what to do next. And they tell this about themselves in the Scriptures. It's self-condemning. If you're protecting your own honor and your own name, you don't write what they write. Yet they write almost self-condemning words. (laughs) We didn't believe this. We were mourning. In fact, they went to the tomb and they saw it, Peter and John. And they're still like, I don't know what happened. Thomas is the one who comes and he's this skeptic, this doubter. And he says, I'm not going to believe it unless I see him. Even though all these friends that I've been with for three years are all telling me that they saw him, I won't believe. Why would you write that stuff? Unless that's what actually happened. Right after Jesus was raised, this persecution swept the land. Where if you believed and you clung to the resurrection, you might be persecuted by a guy named Saul. Where you might be dragged off to prison or killed. That's what happens. So if you are going to cling to something 
And you're going to die for it. It better be true. And yet this is exactly what they did because that's how it happened. And the reality of the truth of the resurrection is essential to the gospel. It was essential enough for them to lay down their lives for that truth. That Jesus raised from the dead. And that we will put our lives on the line that He raised from the dead. This is essential for us. In Romans 10.9 it says this. That if you confess with your mouth, this is the part we know, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that what? You have to believe that God raised Him from the dead in order to be saved. If you just have a partial gospel, you have no gospel. That Jesus died for our sins according to Scripture, that He was buried, and that He was raised. Without one or the other, we are not saved. And so if you don't believe in the resurrection, you don't have a part in Christ. The reason is more than just what Paul included here. But why? Why did Jesus have to be raised? Why this way? Why was the resurrection necessary? And a few authors say this. They say that the cross and resurrection are the proof that our sins are paid for and death is defeated. But how? How? Why the resurrection and how does that prove anything that Jesus was raised? Well, remember, the sin presents us two big problems that we can't get around. It is a penalty that we can't pay and it is a power that we can't overcome. And the penalty of sin is death. An eternal death. A death that we, we can't pay for even with all eternity. So the greatest power of sin is death. So there's a penalty we can't pay and a power, death, that we can't overcome. And so if Jesus actually and fully paid for sin, how could it be shown that He did it? it had to be a resurrection. It had to be a resurrection. How could it be shown that He actually and fully paid for sin? That, that what He paid on behalf of sinners actually worked. It had to be a resurrection. If He remained in the tomb, then He would still be paying the penalty of sin. Which is death. So the resurrection is necessary to show that His payment was made and accepted. And I love these words from Tim Keller. Jesus Christ came to pay the penalty for our sins. And that was an infinite sentence. But He must have satisfied it fully because on Easter Sunday He walked out free. And the resurrection was God's way of stamping paid in full right across history so that nobody could miss it. Only the resurrection lets us know that. Only the resurrection lets us know that our sin, that the penalty of our sin has actually been taken out. Paid in full. But what about the power of sin? If Jesus actually and fully conquered the power of sin, how could it be shown that He did it? Now we're leading you to the answers, right? You know this. This is a resurrection! And how could we know that Jesus fully and finally conquered the power of sin? How could He show it? He could show it by the resurrection. If He remained in the tomb, then He would still be under the power of sin. Which is death. So the resurrection is necessary to show that Jesus crushed the power of sin and death. And so now we come back to it again. That the cross and resurrection are the proof that our sins are paid for and death is defeated because He is risen. And the resurrection proves to us, to all of us, that the penalty of sin has been taken out, has been paid, that the power of sin has been destroyed by the one who died and rose again. Amen. And it's only then, only then through Jesus and His death and His resurrection that any of us can be delivered. Amen. There is no other way to get out from under the penalty of sin. There is no other way to get out from under the power of sin. It's only through Jesus. Amen. And this is the content of the gospel. 
The sins are paid for. The power of sin is broken all through Jesus. He died for our sins. According to the Scripture, He was buried. He was raised according to the Scriptures. And the good news demands of us a response. Always does. Good news always demands a response from us. And Paul shows three ways in which he wants people to respond to the Gospel. In which they had responded and in which he hopes they would respond. With kind of three witches in the first couple verses. Not witches like with hats and brooms. But, you know, the word. Witches. You look in verse 1. I would remind you, brothers, of the Gospel. And I preach to you, which you received. Paul reminds them of the Gospel. That is, he reminds them of the content of the Gospel. That if you miss the content, you don't actually have the Gospel. Because the Gospel... 14 chapters in to believers and unbelievers is necessary. So if you came in here today and you've been to a million Easter sermons, you thought, I didn't need this sermon today. I didn't need to hear about the resurrection. I didn't need to hear the gospel. I'm just here because. Like, or if you are a Christian and you come and you didn't think you needed to hear another gospel sermon or another thing about the, the content of the gospel, then I think Paul disagrees with you. Because he wants to remind you then of the gospel. If you think you don't need any gospel, then that's proof positive that you need more gospel. And that's what I'm here to do. (laughs) And I need reminding of it too. And we need reminding of it, all of us, for the same reasons the Corinthians did. Chapters 1 through 14 reasons. Because we were divisive. Because we want our own way. Because we have power struggles. Because we walk in immorality. Because we think certain things in the culture are acceptable when they're not. Because we we want to use our gifts to exalt ourselves instead of build up the body. I mean, 1 through 14 reasons, and there are a lot of them in there. That's the reason that every single one of us needs to be reminded of the gospel. Whether you're a believer and have been a believer for years, you need the content of the gospel. Or if you're an unbeliever, we would say receive the gospel, as Paul says here. Paul reminds them, this first witch, this is what you received. The Corinthians were known for bad things. This is an immoral city and immoral people. In fact, I think he says it well in 1 Corinthians 6, even of the Corinthian believers. What does he say in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, nor... Nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Cuts us all out again, does it not? We're all in there. And such were some of you. These are the Corinthians. Like this is what they are known for. And such were some of you. But what happened? But you were washed. And you were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of our God. They were not great. They were not strong. They were not moral. They were not upstanding people. They were like every single one of us. They had a propensity not toward the gospel, but away from it. Not toward God, but away from God. And the gospel came and they were washed. I love what one of my professors told us about the gospel. He says, all the gospel is is good news in a graveyard. Corinthian, the Corinth and the Corinthian church, that is a graveyard. And what does the the gospel come and do in that graveyard? It speaks to dry bones and things start rattling around to come to life. Paul came, proclaimed the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And these immoral, crazy Corinthians start believing in Jesus. They received the gospel. They believed. And we are all like these Corinthians in our sin. No propensity toward the gospel. They didn't have a propensity toward the gospel. They weren't more inclined to hear the gospel and believe the gospel than we are. And yet they heard it and believed it. 
The Gospel calls to dead bones to come to life. It beckons us to be received. I think one of the things we love is to give gifts to our kids at Christmas time. We, we love to, to kind of pick them out. Like, what would they like? What would be fun for them to receive for Christmas? And so, as Christmas approaches, here's what our kids don't do. They don't get in their rooms and start doing push-ups. I've got to get ready. I've got to open those gifts. I've got to get these arms strong. They don't go do some bench presses. Like, oh, got to get ready. Curls. Got to get ready to open up this gift. Got to rip this thing open. I got to have the muscles to be able to do it. They don't go into the rooms and put on a tie and say, you know what? I've got to present myself right if I'm going to open this present and receive it well. All those pictures that are going to go in those photo albums for years are going to be the right picture of me. They don't do any of that. What do they do? You know what they do. It doesn't matter what they're wearing. They don't care how strong they are. They don't even care how big the package is. Big or small, they are going to rip that thing to shreds. They are tearing through some paper, excited, with glad hearts, ripping off the paper to receive their gifts. And that's the kind of reception that we are to have of the gospel. Don't go and get everything figured out, put our best stuff on, get all strong, and get these commandments figured out, and then we go receive the gospel. No, we are immoral, we are greedy, we are swindlers, we are all these things, and we just get washed. Get washed by the gospel. And it truly seems like it's too good to be true. That sinners can be washed and sanctified and justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is another reason we need to be reminded of it again. But it is true. It is that good. So some of you have never believed. And we would say receive the gospel. Believe in Jesus and be saved. Respond to the good news by belief. Now there were some in, in the Corinthian church that had received the gospel. And Paul goes further. Verse In his second which, you know, the end of verse 1. Says this is which you received, in which you also stand. Stand, that is, you don't move out of or beyond the gospel. The gospel isn't just the doorway to Christianity. If you thought you were just going to hear a gospel sermon, and that's just the entry gate into Christianity, you're wrong. Like we preach the gospel every single week here. The gospel isn't just the doorway, it is the entire household of Christianity. We don't move beyond it. The further we go doesn't mean we leave the gospel behind, it just means we move further in. More depth, more greatness. One author says that the, the key to continual and deeper, deeper spiritual renewal, that is growth in Christianity, maturity in Christianity, is the continual rediscovery of the never-ending depths of the gospel. You are going to go further down and further in. You are to stand in it. You don't move beyond it. You don't get outside of it. You stay in it. And so are we going to know the, the, the depths of the gospel? I don't know. We keep going that direction. I mean, are we going to get to the end of Ephesians 1 and 2? Romans 3 through 6, I mean, every other place in the scripture. Are we going to get to the end of that? What he seasoned Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. He's, he's getting on his end of his life. He's writing some of the last letters he's going to write. And he says, this needs to be accepted. Christ came to save sinners. Like, Paul, we've heard that. Go deeper. He doesn't. 2 Timothy, his last letter, 2.8 says, Remember, Jesus, risen from the dead, as preached in my gospel... Timothy, you've been a pastor for a long time. Here's what you need to know. Remember, Jesus was raised. That's what you need to know. You will not outgrow the gospel. You will need to stand in it all of your fleeting days. I will need to be reminded of it and to stand in it all the days that I am on the earth. So Christian, are you standing in the gospel? Or do you need to be called back? Is this not why we see all sorts of programs, productions, pretending in life, performing in life from the so-called people of God. 
Now, none of those things necessarily, pretending and performing, those are bad. All right, don't do that. Programs, productions, none of those things are bad in and of themselves. But why do we feel like we have to prop up the gospel with something? It's because we're not standing in the gospel. We move beyond the gospel. And we think, all right, we got the gospel, let's move on. Which, once again, is proof positive that you don't have the gospel and you do need to go back. Now, none of those things, production and performance and pretending, none of those things move the gospel forward. They're not even possible for a large majority of the world. They don't have programs and productions to be able to put together so the gospel can go forward in their church. They have the Word of God. They have the Spirit of God. And the work moves forward. And we need to stand in the gospel. Individually and as a church, knowing our need for it, knowing that we need to be reminded of it, knowing there are greater depths there, knowing that we, when we know the gospel more, what we're doing is we're knowing God more. We get to know Him. This is the gospel in which we received, in which we stand. And here's the third one, verse 2. In which you are being saved. This is a present tense. You are being saved, but it has clearly, you would see, like it's speaking of the future too. It's trying to to make us look forward to the future. You are being saved, but there's also something that you will be saved from. That is that the power of God unto salvation is for now and to come. You are being saved. You will be saved. Salvation is for today. It's also to, to be completed on that great day. Past event, you've received it. Present reality, you stand in it. Future hope, you will be saved by it. That is what we can say, as one author said, that the triumph of Easter Sunday is the reality in which we live every moment of every day until that day, which is coming soon. So where are you in your response to the gospel? We've heard the content. We've seen some the essential elements that, that Paul gives for his gospel. Where are you in your reception of it? Do you need to receive it? Believe in Jesus. Do you need to be called back to stand in it? Do you need to be encouraged by the hope that you will be saved? That you are being saved? Well, as a church, as the people of God, we stand in the reality of the resurrection. And one way that the people of God have historically responded to the gospel message is by the Lord's Supper. That is, that this is a display of the gospel. That we're saying we've received the gospel, that we're standing in the gospel, and that we know that the gospel is what is going to keep us until that day. So the Lord's Supper for believers is our response. To come and and tear off the bread and be reminded that Jesus' body was broken for you. That His blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And Paul says, as much as we do this, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. So your response is to come. Not get ready. If you have sin to confess, confess it, but not clean yourself up. Jesus does that. And then come, receive freely from His hand what He has provided by His life, death, and resurrection. If you're not a believer, this is not your way to respond. This is not your meal. Your meal is Christ Himself. Take Christ. Believe in Him. And we'll prepare you to take this meal next time. But believers, be encouraged by what Christ has done. Come. When you're ready, tear off a piece of the bread, dip in the juice, and look around and be reminded that all of these people are by faith coming and saying, Jesus is enough for me. He's paid it all. Be reminded, be encouraged. Stand and be saved by the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the gospel. 
May we never tire of going over the gospel. Continue to use it to call us to greater freedom, to greater power in life, to greater love and knowledge of who you are, and to help sustain us that we might stand and be saved. It's in the gospel that we've received, that we stand, in which we are being saved, that we, we come before you, that we can approach your throne. So God, we pray that in our proclamation of the gospel, in our hearing of the gospel, and even of our showing the gospel now in this supper, that Christ would be exalted. And God, we pray that maybe you'd call some for the first time. God, we pray this so that you would be honored, so that the Lamb who is slain would, would be seen as worthy, and so the church would be built up once again to the honor of its head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for raising from the dead that we could preach this today. In Christ's name that we pray. Amen.